It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me, or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Maricopa County rejected almost every request in the Senate subpoena shortly before the 1 p.m. deadline. If the Senate wants to get what it wants, it might have to go to court. What this really brings us back to is that this is simply political theater. The majority Republican Maricopa County Board won't give in to the Republican Senate's demand for more election materials. The Senate's partisan audit of the county's 2020 vote is now four months old. The public portion of the review now done. The final report, we're told, is being written. But last week, Senate President Karen Fan subpoenaed more information. Some of it is already in the Senate's hands. Almost everything they ask for has already been supplied. If they knew what they were doing, they knew how to deal with it. The Republican review grew out of state lawmakers' push to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's victory in Arizona. Former President Donald Trump cheered on the review at a recent Phoenix rally. According to the contractor leading the audit, pro-Trump groups have raised $5.7 million to pay for it. We have not obstructed this. It's time for them to issue a report. Karen Fan is focused on getting what she was denied, access to equipment in order to investigate a conspiracy theory. We are weighing our options and will make a thoughtful decision in due course, she said. It is unfortunate the noncompliance continues to delay the results and breeds distrust. A final report on the election review is expected sometime this month. In Phoenix, Bram Resnick, 12 News. That's the story in Maricopa County, the story that never ends, and that is what happened in the 2020 presidential election. Maricopa County, as I have been told, is like uh, huge compared to most counties, and it is the county in which uh, a lot of mischief took place, and they have been conducting this intense audit uh, for several weeks, but the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors is just uh, standing in their way. So the update on that particular story is that Attorney General Mark Abronovich has opened up an investigation into whether Maricopa County broke the law by refusing to comply with legislative subpoenas which were issued in conjunction with that 2020 election. So um, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything more about that. I don't know if the um, Attorney General Mark Bronovich is, you know, what his persuasion is, but let's just say the people that are conducting this audit are swinging full bore. They're trying to get to the bottom of what happened. They're almost done. With their count, they're just lacking some of the technical things that Maricopa County will not release. And so the, the battle goes on. And so you wonder, I'm also reading about different states that we've not even been talking about. That's Arizona. We've been talking about Michigan, which is talking about conducting an audit, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's just not going away. And so with that in mind, it reminded me of a great article that General Michael Flynn has written that I want to share with you because it's kind of a a synopsis of where we are 
and how to think. How in the world do we think about the 2020 presidential election? If you uh, read social media, you know, you can't see anything that will present to you the information that I present to you on the election every day because it's taken down. Fox News is busy censoring anyone uh, who talks about, you know, some sort of election fraud in 2020. In fact, uh, you remember that Mike Lindell, who, uh, with my pillow, uh, recently removed something like $90 million of advertising from Fox because they would not run an ad in which he was advertising a symposium he's had this week, a cyber symposium, on uh, what happened in the election. Uh, so um, Fox is not allowing people to talk about, and certainly the other channels are not either. And so the American people have had to find other ways to get their information about what's happened in the aftermath of that election and just how honest was it and what really happened and what was the truth in all of that? Because we deserve to know, do we not? So as reasonable people think about this, uh, there are ways to analyze it that don't require you to understand all the uh, the, the mechanics of voting machines and uh, the uh, you know the, the mysteries of uh, hard drives and uh, all the things that they talk about that some of us may not be able to explain or comprehend. Uh, but there are other ways to think about this election that just require common sense, and that's what Lieutenant General Michael Flynn has written about. It's um, ten indisputable facts indisputable facts on the 2020 election that argue for audits, okay? So you might want to take a pencil or a pen uh, in case we put this on our Facebook page, which we will, and you can't get it. But uh, here's what it says. One seminal event that continues to fester like a boil on the American psyche is this past November 3rd, 2020 presidential election. Why does it continue to fester? It festers because people of all stripes and backgrounds believe there were elements of election fraud, misrepresentations of the truth, dishonesty, and in certain cases, severe obstruction by politicians at all levels of government. In the days following the presidential election, there were vast claims of conspiracy theory that the election was somehow stolen in the middle of the night. In fact, many people believe the theft actually occurred during the days prior and subsequent to the election day. And there are a lot of other reasons, too, and we could go through all that. But I want to give you the nuts and bolts of what he's written here because I think it's really well worth your time to think about it. So Michael Flynn says, what are the facts of the 2020 election? Are there any things that we can really sink our teeth into, some things that are facts uh, that offer a sense of honesty and truth? What I want to offer for both believers and non-believers are some facts. These facts and the data behind them come from research and analysis of information gathered directly from federal, state, and county websites. These facts compare past elections to November 2020, and all that is required to understand them is simple common sense. Okay, are you ready? So this is the analysis, and these are some of the facts. There's a lot more things to say about what's happened in these various states, but just stay with this analysis. You know, Bellwether counties are counties that year after year sort of, um, they go wherever they go, whichever way they vote, they are sort of, they tell us who the president's going to be. They've done it repeatedly for years. That's why we call them bellwether counties. Uh, And um, so you have to know that in 2020, former President Donald Trump carried 18 of 19 bellwether counties. He only lost one, which was in Washington State. Now, um, 
from eight from 1980 to 2016, just to give you an idea, 19 counties, most of them industrial counties in the northern and midwestern United States, voted for the winner of all 10 presidential elections. That's why those 19 are called bellwether counties because for the last how you know 1980 to 2016, that's a long time. They've always chosen the person that was elected president and uh, finally. Okay, so. Uh, so, since uh, 1936, by the way, a key bellwether county, Luzerne County, of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, has gone to the winner of Pencil to the winner, regardless of party. Okay, so that's one county that's never made a mistake since 1936. All right, so here let's talk about what happened in November, in 2016 and 2020. Trump won Luzerne County. That's that bellwether county that has voted every year since 1936 for the one that's finally elected. Trump won that county handily for 2016 and 2020. Um, so, so, so President Trump, just to, to, to wrap that up, President Trump won 18 of the 19 bellwether counties, and he still lost. He also won Luzerne, which is voted for the president, the correct candidate, at least the one that's chosen, Every year since 1936, he won that too, and he still lost the election. Okay, so that's just one thing to think about. So there are also, like there are bellwether counties, there are bellwether states. There are states that, generally speaking, because of their demographic, um, uh, whether it's uh, union workers or minority people or whatever, they the mix somehow represents how the, the, the entire country votes on the whole. And so there are four very vital bellwether states, and they are Ohio, Iowa, North Carolina, and Florida. And so um, these states have been won by the same candidate 13 times since uh, since 1896, and every single time that candidate won either the presidency or their re-election. Okay? So every time since 1896, that's a pretty strong bellwether, isn't it? Okay, so on all but two occasions since 1896, Ohio's electoral voice, for example, Ohio, their electoral votes went to the ultimate winner of the presidency. Trump overwhelmingly won Ohio in 2020. Okay, so what's, what's Flynn's point on this? His point is that in all but two occasions since 1896, Ohio's electoral votes, whoever won Ohio and got the electoral votes, won either re-election or the presidency. And Trump won Ohio overwhelmingly in 2020, but he lost the presidency. And the third thing Michael Flynn points out, uh, the share of primary votes during the primary election is a way to judge outcomes of presidential elections. Now think about this. Each of the candidates of the two parties, the two major parties, you know, have rallies and um, they have their primaries. And in the case of Donald Trump, remember how many candidates there were <laughs> when he first uh, ran? It's just It was just amazing. So you can kind of tell, can you? Doesn't it make sense that the number of primary votes that you get would kind of have some bearing on who becomes the president. So just um, to make that point, since presidential primaries began in 1912, only four incumbents have lost re-election, all garnering garnering 72.8% of the primary vote or less. I'm going to skip some of this, but he says the most dominant Republican landslide re-elections in this time frame were won by Dwight Eisenhower in 1956. He won 859 percent of the primary share. Okay, so stay with me. 
he did become president, in case some of you are too young to remember. He became the president, and in the primary, he won 85.9% of the votes. Richard Nixon also became president, and in his primary in 72, he won 86.9%. Ronald Reagan, who became president in 1984, in the primary, won 98.8% of the votes. And Donald Trump, in 2020, won 94% of the primary votes in 2020, and yet he lost. By contrast, Joe Biden was trounced in the 2020 Democratic primaries in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And those are traditional indicators of general election viability. Doesn't that make sense? Don't we all know he didn't do very well? His running mate, Kamala Harris, did so poorly that she had to drop out of the race, and yet they won the presidency and the vice presidency. Does that make sense? Now, we're talking common sense here. So, um, generally speaking, now, we wouldn't, I wouldn't notice this, but the election watchers would. Incumbents, people who've been president and they run again, the incumbents who gain votes, they always win. Incumbent vote gain is another key indicator of presidential race outcomes since 1892. Um, and as the expansion of the United States slowed, only six presidents have lost re-election. All six had fewer total votes in their re-election campaign than in their initial. Okay, so bottom line, you're, you, you are the president, you run again. If you get less votes than you got when you won initially, you usually lose. You lose. But if you win more votes than you won four years prior, you win. In 2020, President Trump gained a record 11 million votes over what he got in 2016. And for perspective, former President Barack Obama lost 4 million votes nationally in 2012 and still won re-election. Uh, there's a lot more to say about this, uh, but you get an idea of why Michael Flynn is talking about here and the common sense that you can apply uh, to saying to yourself, wait a second, what happened here? If you were watching election night when suddenly the polls were, not the polls, but the the election coverage was shut down. They said they were going to stop for the night. And then in the middle of the night, Joe Biden suddenly wins hundreds of thousands of votes, uh, all for him. And uh, the next morning, whereas Trump was way ahead the night before, uh, Joe Biden is the winner. It's very strange. That, too, is common sense. We have more to say about it. So uh, stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. When a, when a president is in power, an incumbent president gains the kind of makes the kind of gains that that we made on the Republican side of the ballot. Right, the number of seats that were gained, particularly in the House, an incumbent has never lost ever, ever in the history of the country. The type of gains. Even in, and in that particular paragraph, I talk about where even Barack Obama from from um, from uh, when he was an incumbent in 2000, from 2008 to 2012, there was actually a, a slight loss of seats, but it wasn't that the, mar the margin was really minor. It was about eight to ten, I think, in the in the article. But he still won and he won it in a in a in a much smaller margin than when he beat McCain in 2008. I mean, we go back in that article. 
We go back and look at data going all the way back to 1896. So Bellwether counties, which is the first point, 18, Trump won, hands down won, 18 of 19 Bellwether counties, 18 of 19 Bellwether counties. It's it's over 100 years when we talk about that many counties by an incumbent, that's the guy, the, the, the president has never lost, ever lost. And then you go through, I go through the other the other eight, the bellwether states, the the, uh, the percentage increases in voter registration in Pennsylvania alone. There's one county in Pennsylvania. If the in, if the uh, person wins, it's Luzerne County. If the person wins Luzerne County, they have never lost the state of Michigan. So that's Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. They've never lost the state of Michigan because of where it's located and the and the culture and the and the unions and the and the working class people that live there. Never lost it. Trump won Luzerne County, yet loses, yet loses Michigan. That was Lieutenant General Flynn on Lieutenant General Flynn. Uh, he was talking with Brandon House about um, the article that we're talking about here, which is 10 indisputable facts, indisputable facts on the 2020 election. You know, a lot of conversation about the election this week, a lot of it uh, because of uh, uh, Mike Lindell's symposium, cyber symposium, which is taking place has been taking place all week, the 10th through the 12th. It's like 72 hours straight. I hope you've caught some of it, but if you haven't, go to Frank Speech. Go to frankspeech.com or Frank Speech, um, and you can watch the videos in retrospect. And if you want information on what's being uncovered by Sidney Powell and by other forensic experts about these elections, that's the go-to place. And uh, if Mike Lindell uh, delivers like he has been delivering, I bet... I'm just hoping that his social media part of this frankspeech.com will be as good uh, as his coverage of the election because he is just dogged in his determination to get the information out. And that's the reason, again, why he's severed his contract with Fox. He's pulled out $90 million-plus in advertising because they would not let him advertise his cyber symposium on Fox. And by the way, I just uh, saw where uh, Fox news editors— not Dan Pongino and his team. Dan did an interview with President Trump this week, and uh, after they finished, completed the interview, little Fox helpers went in and edited out the part of the interview where President Trump claims that the election was fraudulent and something needs to be done about it. So they they fixed it, you know, so that Dan wouldn't get in trouble. It'll be interesting to see what Dan does about that. I, I can't imagine him sitting still for that. I can't. Uh, but we'll see. But they, they are so uh, the powers that be are so eager uh, to make those of us who, just by common sense, look at these facts and figures and say something happened on November third that was not normal. And Joe Biden is not bright enough. He's not capable enough. Kamala Harris is so unlikable. It doesn't make any sense that he should have won. You could not like a candidate. I did not like Barack Obama, but I knew he won. I don't think he stole the election. It's not about liking or not liking someone. It's about just common sense, like, what? How how could that have happened? That makes no common sense. But I'm going to go back to General Flynn's, um, his article, 10 Indisputable Facts. He just kind of recounted those first few that uh, that I've been sharing with you that he had written about, the Bellwether states, the Bellwether counties, the share of primary votes, you know, the candidates that win most of the primary votes actually end up winning the election, and that made perfect sense. But now here's some others. 
voter registration by party. And this means, of course, we you can kind of see state by state how many, now again, think two parties uh, in each of these states for right now. Uh, whichever party registers the most people in a given uh, year, that has a tremendous influence on the election because it shows enthusiasm in the party and most like new voters will get out and vote. So it makes a big difference. So take, for instance, Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, from 2012 to 2016, 60 of 67 counties trended more Republican in their registration. So it looked like, you know, there might be a major Republican gain in that state, and there was. In fact, Pennsylvania flipped for the first time for a Republican in a very long time, and Trump won in 2016. So back to the article here, a legitimate Trump loss in Pennsylvania would show a registration lead expansion for Democrats. However, from 2016 to 2020, 60 of the 67 counties became more Republican in registration once again, with the GOP registering roughly 242,000 net new voters, compared to just 12,000 for Democrats. That's a huge difference, isn't it? You wonder what the Democrats were doing. I guess they thought they didn't. I guess they had another plan besides trying to actually register voters, but but I'm doing an editorial. I'm supposed to be just sticking to the facts, so let me do that. So um, this number suggests that in a normal year, normal election, the margin of victory for Trump should have been substantially increased. Uh, But it wasn't. It wasn't because President Trump, of course, as we know, they tell us, lost in Pennsylvania. And when a lawsuit, which for which they had other reasons to, to file this lawsuit, was filed, in fact, m- many of us thought it was the strongest slam-dunk case of un- unconstitutional activity by, a, by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that should have been heard by the Supreme Court. It was never heard. The SCOTUS refused to hear it, not because they looked at it and said there's nothing to it, but because they just didn't want to mess with it. Okay, so that's what happened. That's Pennsylvania. Okay, so... Another indicator is down-ballot voting. What does that mean? Well, it means, of course, if you are, your name is Mary Smith, but nobody knows who you are, and you're running under Barack Obama, and uh, a person goes in and takes a ballot and says, I want to vote straight Democratic, and you're a Democrat, Mary Smith. Uh, Mary Smith, guess what? You would have won down-ballot, because even if you might not have the popularity of the top of the ticket, uh, they would carry you. Okay, so in down-ballot voting... For instance, uh, Obama won a landslide victory in 2008, and consequently the Democrats' down-ballot took 14 U.S. House seats away from Republican incumbents, and they only lost five seats. So another, so Barack Obama's a Democrat, uh, um, a Republican, Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and the Republicans gained a net of 34 seats, 34 seats in the House. So when Reagan was re-elected, Republicans clawed back a net of 16 House seats from the 26 lost in the midterms. So you see, down ballot, you usually win if the top of the ticket wins. But in 2020, with Trump at the top of the ticket, with all the votes we just talked to you about that he had gained, Republicans knocked out 13 incumbent Democratic seats while not losing a single Republican-held seat. And let me just tell you, no one expected that to happen. Not in the House. I think the, the House was planning on losing big time. According to the outcome of the election, Trump lost. Oh, he lost. Joe Biden won because he did so well. So Trump lost, but un, un, uncannily, Republicans knocked out 13 incumbent Democrats down ballot, and they didn't lose a single Republican-held seat. 
So common sense suggests that a Biden electoral landslide would have taken at least one Republican seat with it, wouldn't it? Well, I guess not. This is just one of those strange things that happened in 2020. Now, Florida, which comes up in the conversation a lot, doesn't it? Florida is a key trend indicator. Since 1932, it has been because its vote, its outcome, and its election has correlated perfectly with the trajectory of Michigan and Pennsylvania as a reflection of working-class sentiment. In every single election since then, since 1932, if Florida became more Republican from the previous election, Michigan and Pennsylvania did exactly the same. These three states also largely moved together to the left when Democratic nominees make gains. So they go, it goes to the right and it goes to the left depending on whatever these things that they must have in common, these states, Florida and Michigan and Pennsylvania. But in 2020, by again, since 1932, they've been doing that. But in 2020, all things were different. Trump won Florida by a margin <clears throat> greater than 2%, points higher than he did in 2016. So he, he, he won it by more than two points, but they're saying by more than two points greater than he won in 2016. And dis- but despite massive Republican registration in Pennsylvania, I just told you that, it was like 240,000 versus 8,000 for Democrats. Well, despite that massive uh, uh, registration, both Pennsylvania and Michigan charted a separate direction. He lost, so they said, so they told us, in Pennsylvania and Michigan. So that's another head-scratcher, I think, first time since 1932. So then another little simple point for those of us that just want to use common sense. How do you gain everywhere? You gain in uh, the primary votes, you gain... Uh, by the way, in minority voting, which I think he's going to get to that, he, how many gains President Trump made in minority voters, you won, win all of that. You win the bellwether counties, almost all of them except for one. You win in Republican registration, but you lose everything. How does that happen? How does that happen? So as an example of that, Maricopa County, we started talking about that at the top of the show, uh, which casts nearly two-thirds of all the votes in Arizona— that has not gone for a Democrat since 1948. Maricopa County hasn't. It's, the, it's a conservative county. Trump carried the county by three percentage points in 2016. Uh, he received fewer votes than Mitt Romney had in the county in 2012. But in 2020, Trump set a Republican record for net additional votes in Maricopa County by adding roughly 248,000 more votes from his 2016 performance in Maricopa County. He was the first Republican nominee, though, to lose that county in 72 years. Now, think about that. Maricopa County always goes, um, for the, it always goes for a Republican. It has since 1948. And President Trump increased his number of votes from 2016, which he carried Maricopa, by 248,000 votes from 2016, and he still lost I don't know. So, um, by the way, I guess he lost because Joe Biden gained nearly 338,000 net new voters from 2016, which is nearly three times higher than the all-time previous high Democratic vote gain in the county by John Kerry. So, similar record high vote totals and increases for Trump were also eclipsed in 22 in the states of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, Minnesota in those losing efforts. He got more votes than anyone ever but he lost. So then uh, 
Michael Flynn in his article, because I'm reading from an article called 10 Indisputable Facts on the 2020 Election that Argue for Audits. We'll put this on our Facebook page. He talks about how well Trump did in minority voters, and the victory always goes to the person who does the best in the minority communities. So um, he achieved, President Trump, a level of minority support seen just one time since Nixon's 1960 campaign. Uh, He did well in urban areas in the Midwest, southern Texas, uh, Miami-Dade, California, Florida, sorry. Trump's vote increase in long-held Republican suburban counties uh, and others show that his white support did not collapse. Remember, that's what they told us. He lost because his white support collapsed. But that just is not true. The figures don't bear that out. So, and the last the last one here that Michael Flynn raises, he says, um, <laughs> this whole notion, they keep telling us that the 2020 election was the most secure presidential election in the U.S., in U.S. history. Okay, so... In 2016, with narrow margins in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, Trump's camp had no concern over recounts or potential audits in any of those three states. So in other words, um, they weren't worried. If there had been audits, it was fine because they were confident of their numbers. But Biden has a wider margin of, in the final counts, the final numbers that they gave us, he had a wider margin, and yet they will not allow recounts. They're apoplectic about any of these audits. Why? If they have that much of a margin of win, why wouldn't they want to do that? And I would also say that that reminds me of another article that came across. This is an article in the National Pulse. This is really interesting. They have unearthed papers, or a paper, to show that um, a Center for American Progress, which is a Biden-linked group, it's Podesta, the Podesta brothers. It was the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton as John Podesta, uh, it's it's that whole family of uh, of Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton supporters. Uh, they did a whole um, paper demanding robust audits and admitting that the machines are hackable and that they don't have internet access. It sounds if you could change the header here, you would think that Mike Lindell had published this paper. So they knew about these problems, and now they're calling uh, the concerns that people have. Uh, all, uh, and there are so many people with so many concerns that, you know, this is... Uh, what? Uh, the big lie? Uh, it's uh, a grand delusion? What is it? This is, you know, we're crazy, but they, of course, were smart when they were calling for the same thing. This has been a very interesting week, and I hope that you are tuning in to uh, Frank's speech and do you watch Mike Lindell's um, cyber symposium, at least in part. Even You can do it, you know, now. You don't have to wait. Maybe you couldn't do it live, but now's the time to do it. And that's at frankspeech.com. I'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at sandy at AFR.net. That's sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Thank you. Well, we appreciate all all that yeah. you're doing. Um, yeah. We're getting a lot of good letters in there. That, yeah. um, really is good for morale in there yeah. for the guys. Um, yeah, you hear that, America? These guys want some letters. <laughs> that really is the best clip of the week, and I'm sure you are trying to figure out what exactly that was. Well, I'll tell you exactly what that was. There was a guy running for Congress in Washington State. His name is Gerald, uh, Jared Sessler. I know nothing about him, except he was at the uh, jail uh, filming 
uh, earlier this week, uh, and he's been covering the January 6th protesters. He was there himself on January the 6th, and he has a real passion for defending them. And so on that alone, I surely do like Jared Sessler. We'll have to make a an appointment to have him with us so we can get acquainted with him a little bit. But here's the deal. He and his son were in front of the jail filming. Uh, I don't know what they were going to do exactly. I would advocate. Yeah, they were going to advocate. Uh, but without any planning whatsoever, a guy comes walking out of the jail named Carl Dresch. Carl is just being released. He's been in prison there since, I think, January. He's been arrested in January. He's been in that D.C. jail uh, since January. So um, he has just been released. He comes walking out, and he sees um, Jared Sessler doing this taping and kind of approaches and agrees to talk to Jared on tape. Now, here's the bad part. Unfortunately, there's a lot of wind, and the audio is bad. Otherwise, I'd play the entire thing for you. But as you can imagine, Carl Drush is kind of, um, he's not exactly bombastic. He's just walked out to light and freedom for the first time in months, six months. He hasn't seen his family. And so I, I wouldn't say he was the most articulate person in the world. He seemed awkward and a little nervous. He's probably, he did tell um, uh, Jared Sessler that he would talk to him off camera. He would t- tell him more things. So he was careful, <clears throat> I think careful, a little bit pinched in how he approached this. But what I want you now to go back and remember, remember that we've talked, and I know you've done this because I know you. I know that many of you have written letters to these guys in this jail um, because we talked about it and we suggested you go to patriotmailproject.com. And uh, so evidently, a few of you did that. And so it was just music to my ears. Uh, when... Um, when uh, no, it's, I keep getting their names mixed up. Jared Sessler's the candidate, and Carl Dresch is the guy that just got out of jail in D.C. So when Carl Dresch just volunteered to Jared, Jared Sessler this, I just felt like my heart just leapt, and I want you to hear it. Let's play it one more time, Adam. Thank you. Well, we appreciate all, all that yeah. you're doing. Um, yeah, we're getting a lot of good letters in there. Yeah. Um, really is good for morale in there yeah. for the guys. Um, yeah, you hear that, America? These guys want some letters. Really is good for morale. We we appreciate it, and he volunteered that. Uh, the, the congressman wanted, wanted to be con- congressman didn't start that conversation. Uh, Carl did. Now let me tell you a little bit about Carl and what he did tell us in that uh, interaction. Uh, he said he was not allowed to get a shave or a haircut unless he would get the vaccine, which he refused to do. He was kept in his cell sometimes twenty eight hours a day. He he had he ended up pleading guilty to parading. What did he pray? He paraded with a flag. He in, he pleaded guilty to parading. Did you know that was a crime? I didn't know that either. And so, um, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who is the judge who's been deciding who you know who lives and who dies. I'm overstating. The off with your heads judge uh, in D.C. said it was clear from statements that Carl made before he and after. January 6th, that Carl Dresch of Calumet, Michigan, didn't travel to D.C. on January 6th to attend a rally, and that he wasn't charged or jailed because of his political views. Oh, no, no. He is not a political prisoner, she said. We are not here today because he supported former President Trump. He was an enthusiastic participant in an effort to subvert the electoral process. 
Now, could I just pause and say, is that a crime even if it were true? Subverting the electoral process? Well, if it is a crime, I think we have a a whole lot of people to round up and incarcerate uh, because I believe there was a lot of subversion of the electoral process, real subversion, on on, uh, November the 3rd. But let's go on. Jackson said, Oh, Dresch has been in custody since his arrest in January on multiple charges in connection with the Capitol riot. Remember now, he's pleaded guilty to parading. He's pleaded guilty to that horrible, awful crime of parading. According to the charging documents, Dresch posted multiple photos and videos of himself inside the Capitol on January 6th, including one with a caption denying that Antifa had been responsible for the breach. You think that they would like that one? Because they sure don't want to talk about or indicate in any way that Antifa was present on that day. He was in jail for over six months, in a cell for over 24 hours at a time. He said there are about 35 inmates inside the jail still awaiting sentences for crimes like his. And um, so uh, I wanted you to hear one last thing that he had to say, because uh, Jared Sessler, the candidate from Washington, Ask him about how their treatment varied after Louis Gohmert and uh, Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, went into the nah, from from Virginia. Bob Good uh, went to, to the jail and had their press conference. What difference did it make? Let's listen. I'm thankful that we have some some good representatives that are willing to come out here, like Matt Gates and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gohmert from Texas. Uh, to uh, because it sounds like as a result of them coming out here last week, it sounds like conditions improved a little bit inside of you. Started getting a little more time. Little out bit, of yeah, they they're letting us out up to like five hours now, yeah. but it took a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so they they were letting us out of the jail about five hours after that press conference, and after they showed up at the jail, they let them out of their jail cell for five hours a day. But that's the first time it's happened in six months. It's just horrific. It really is. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, back to that subject. Uh, But I want to move to something else because this also came out this week, and I didn't have a chance to tell you. Judicial Watch has been doing yeoman's work, as always, as always. And so Ashley Babbitt's murder in the Capitol has been a mystery to all of us. She's the Army veteran who was climbing the window, the wall between somehow this outer area in the inside of the chamber. And no one's saying she should have been climbing. Uh, But in the videos that you can see of it, there are policemen, like, chatting. They're close by her. There's no riot happening. There's no, uh, you know, she's not behaving well climbing the wall, I don't think. I wouldn't do that. And then you see this arm come out, and you see her shot point blank and killed. And she's not armed. She has no gun She's not breaking the window or anything like that. She could have been ordered down by the police who were just standing there casually, I think, but instead she was shot. So Judicial Watch has uh, been doing FOIA requests on emails regarding Ashley's death, and this, I think, is really interesting. They found one. It's an email uh, dated January the 8th. It's an application to cremate the body of uh, of Ashley Babbitt, uh, and it's labeled completely successful, completed successfully. So they wanted to cremate her, and they said it was the second day, two days after taking custody of her body, they wanted to cremate her, and they did. Now, I, you know, that surprised me. I, I'm talking now off the top of my head. I didn't know that the government had 
the right to cremate a person's body, you'd think the family would have something to say about that, wouldn't you? So the you know why why the rush? Is anybody else? Do you know anybody else that's been cremated two days that quickly? Hardly. So so that's one thing that they found. They also uh, talked about how. Um, oh, they, they go to great detail about who's handling the custody issues, uh, how top secret they marked this, how they created a separate fold, a folder and uh, made it top secret. She was 35 years old, by the way. Uh, the cause of death was uh, announced as a gunshot wound to the left anterior shoulder. The manner of death was homicide. So, um, so that's uh, Judicial Watch has found that out, and, he, and a lot more things too, but I just, uh, I'm going to stop with that because... Interestingly enough, I saw an article here, now I've got to find it, where the uh, killer of Ashley, killer, the shooter, who shot Ashley Babbitt has actually been identified. Uh, his name was, um, you know, I'll have to tell you in just a second when I come across it. I've got lots of information here. But um, Julie Kelly, who's been writing about all of this so faithfully for the last several months, wrote an article talking about this. Here we go. Here it is. And, and just inadvertently, she has his name down here. I thought, wait a second, I've never heard his name mentioned. It's Lieutenant Mike Bird. She was, she, Ashley Babbitt was shot by Lieutenant Mike Bird while trying to climb through a door near the house chamber. Okay, so uh, I, I don't know what that means. That was a shock to me when I read it just moments ago, actually. And um, so one of the attorneys for one of the persons held has appealed to Amnesty International and the American Civil Liberties Unit Union uh, seeking an investigation into the way his client and four other January Sixers were treated in jail. It's Joseph McBride. We've played Joseph's clips before because he's impassioned. He may not be the most articulate attorney, uh, but he's very impassioned about his clients. And he said, to put it mildly, the facility is disgusting. Black mold, brown drinking water, poor ventilation are but a few of the problems with the facility itself. The way the staff treats the detainees is brutal and denies their civil rights. If a detainee speaks up, the guards lock everyone down. If a lawyer speaks out against the jail or the government, the guards lock everyone down. And when the jail really wants to punish, it uses COVID as a cover to lock everyone down for weeks at a time. This means, at best, detainees have one hour each day out of their cells to attend to their personal needs. And you've heard all the stories. I've told you them pretty often. Um... And so he's appealing to Amnesty International, even though they're not usually, they're certainly not friends of conservatives. It'll be interesting if they get involved in this. Um, so, so Ashley Babbitt, I'm going to repeat that. She was shot by Lieutenant Mike Bird. He's the one that killed her. Who is he? I don't know. I, who, Lieutenant Mike Bird. So we'll have to look that up and find out uh, because I think uh, inquiring minds want to know who he was. He was dressed in a suit. There's been speculation Look, this is speculation, Mir. I don't have inside information on this. This is just speculation. If I had it, I'd tell you if I thought I had a good source on it. Uh, but there's been speculation that he might be part of Nancy Pelosi's detail, that he might have been part of uh, Secret Service. I don't know. I just don't know. But uh, they have really guarded his name, close to, t- kept his name close to the vest, and now, now we know what it is. Okay, so now the DOJ is admitting that it is withholding potentially exculpatory uh, evidence in the January 6th criminal case. Well, what does that mean? It means video evidence that these detainees were were innocent and did nothing. Uh, they have been, um, I know, the, the guy that was interviewed, Carl Dresch, made some joke. He 
he laughed a lot in this interview. It was interesting. He just walked out of the jail. Maybe he was nervous. Uh, but he said it was like a Hollywood movie. That he, they had seen the clips, how they put those clips together to make people look really bad while they knew that they did not capture a lot. In fact, uh, Carl goes on to talk about the things he saw police do, at least in part. Uh, so I, I know there'll be more information coming out of, uh, about this. But the um, United U.S. Attorney Channing Phillips wrote this, although we are aware that we possess some information that the defense may view as supportive of arguments that law enforcement authorized defendants to enter the restricted grounds, uh, like images of officers hugging or fist-bumping rioters, posing for photos with rioters and moving bike racks, we are not in a position to state whether we have identified all such information. They're admitting that they have footage that is beneficial to these guys that are being held and have been held for six months, and, uh, and they're not releasing it. And this, this is just, in an, in an American a U.S. court of law, it is absolutely inexcusable. You cannot withhold that. So how they're getting away with that, I don't know. John Roberts, uh, the Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice, I think the Supreme Court does have jurisdiction over these courts, and they're, they're silent. I can think why we can't be real confident that if something goes up to the Supreme Court that they will even hear it or do anything about it. They're such cowards, almost all of them. A couple of absolute rock-solid champions, but the rest of them are cowards or worse. And so that's where we are. So um, um, this has been this, this week now. We've ended the week talking about the two things that we always end up talking about, and that's uh, the chicanery on the November 3rd election of 2020 and what's happening to these detainees, and COVID. Uh, We've talked about that a lot this week, too. But you know what? The left wants us to think that they've won it all. I don't think they have. Not yet. There are such great people out there continuing to fight. There are people that are just just determined to live their lives and be free and to honor God in whatever way he calls them to do that. And we're going to keep on doing that, aren't we? Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.